This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome to Night Float, a series from the Shortcode Podcast and the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine that explores what it means and how to be a successful resident physician. I'm Dave Etler, and with me today are Aaron Hankey, one of our medical student counselors. With me as always, I should say, Aaron Hankey. Hello. Hi. How's it going? Great. Glad to be here. Well, I hope so. This was your idea. <laughs> and we're also, oh my God, people. We are also so lucky to have with us Internal Medicine R3, somebody who may be familiar to you from past shows, Keenan Laraway is back in the studio with us, just like old times. Are you... Are you feeling the nostalgia today? Well, I'm always here in spirit. Yes, uh, yes, you are. But uh, but yes, it is. It's great to be back uh, in the margins of medicine. Yes. But uh, nobody said anything about successful residents, so perhaps we want to reevaluate. Did we, did we leave that off the requirements? Yes, yes. Well, at least off what was sent to me. So you may want to reevaluate, or else just you know edit everything out again. Oh dear. Here, Airplanes me... from Malaysia. <laughs> Dude, no. Aaron. Yes. What are we talking about today? We're going to talk about Dr. Laraway's career process, his decision-making, and uh, his guidance on uh, what we should be when we grow up. Well, <laughs> well it's very broad. It is. It's very broad. Maybe I, particularly your decision-making and your, your career thoughts. Yeah. And what I should be when I grow up. And what yeah. you should be when you grow up. Yeah, this is an intervention. Okay, good. No, can, it's good. Probably. Can you take us back to the beginning? <laughs> All the way back. <laughs> Small child on an airplane from North India. Yes, you know, yes. At that moment, kidneys occurred to me. No, that's not true. No, I think... Um, well, we, we should say you are... Uh, I, did I say internal medicine? I know you said a lot of things, but I don't know if internal medicine was one of them. Yeah, uh, uh, Keenan is in inter internal medicine. You intend to go into, uh, as you implied, there renal. Do, do we mention stuff. other institutions? I mean, I'm, do we? Do, or, yeah, do, yeah, it's okay. So I'm headed to the University of Pennsylvania in, uh, in July to uh, start a nephrology fellowship. So we caught you practically just in time. Congratulations! Thank you. It's your... good to have a job. Employment is important when you yeah. accumulate all that debt. Yeah, yeah. Eight, the eight bucks an hour, you can really chip away for sure. <laughs> for sure. So how did you decide on internal medicine? Um, I think that came fairly naturally, although uh, I don't know whether they know it or not, but pediatrics almost stole me away. Um, but I think early on, people sort of decide in a lot of different ways. But for me, there was a decision point where I, I knew that I was less of a, a doing type and more of a thinking type. And so I, I tended away from procedural subspecialties or specialties. So I think surgery type specialties fell off early. I didn't enjoy as much or at least uh, as much as others did the thrill of going to the operating room after getting up at oh dark 30 and and you know there, there was just no energy to really go and get that diseased gallbladder. I, I was thrilled that it was coming out but didn't really need to stand there and watch that happen. Um, <laughs> hoping that one day I too could position the little laparoscopic 
pointy things so that I could man the computer that takes out the gallbladder. I just you have tr <laughs> trusted that other people could handle that. You've captured the modern surgery. And I assume somebody else is going to come and extol the virtues of uh, appendix removal and gallbladder yeah, extrusion yeah. and all of that, and that's great. And God bless them. Uh, but for me, that you know, it wasn't the the juice wasn't worth the squeeze there. But I thought where I could probably be the most useful, and and the problems that I enjoyed solving were, were definitely tended towards maybe a little more the the long play cerebral sort of uh i think other people would describe as boring but for me they weren't and i think that meant that if if you don't think that it's boring and other people are are describing it that way maybe that means it's part of your niche and so as i started rotating through uh different clinical disciplines i started with internal medicine quickly followed it up with surgery which was quite a nice juxtaposition and i think at that moment uh after doing both of those you i sort of had a sense that maybe something like internal medicine whether that was going to be internal medicine, which is doctors for adults, or uh, pediatrics was next, which is doctors for kids. They're sort of two sides of the same coin. So specialists for uh, that part of the population was going to be what fit me best and how I could be most useful. And then as I rotated through pediatrics, they almost had me until um, probably the strongest mentor I ever had was Pat Brophy, who's a pediatric nephrologist who we just lost to a, a great place uh, in Rochester, New York. He's the chair of pediatrics up there now. But uh, rotating with him, uh, we would start each morning in the pediatric intensive care unit where there were just these really, really sick premature babies. And quite frequently, uh, despite, uh, I mean, and this is an, an impressive institution, the University of Iowa for, for the care we can deliver to premature babies, but we'd lose, we'd lose them. Um, and I, I asked Pat one day, I said, how, how can you do this every day? How do you you know, how does that happen at 7 a.m. and by 9 a.m. you can keep going? And he said, I think I'm just, I'm wired that way. Mm. I'm able, and he delivered just amazing care. I mean, he's a brilliant scientist, a tremendous researcher, and a hell of a doctor. Uh, one of the best I've ever worked with. And he could do that, and I knew I couldn't. Mm -hmm. And so I think that took pediatrics and, and set it aside for me that I loved it. I enjoyed working with kids and working with parents that really wanted to secure health for their kids. But I don't think emotionally I was going to be able to do that part of the job. And, and so um, I, I don't know There's something about me that I can handle sick adults, but sick kids make me really sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And probably so sad that it was enough that I couldn't do that job. And, and you have to think about it long term. What mm -hmm. can you do day in and day out? Mm -hmm. And that makes good sense. So what about internal medicine? Got your juices flowing? Yes, uh, I think so. Working with um, internal medicine. So that started... My clinical clerkships was internal medicine, and um, probably the name Dr. Manish Suneja comes up quite frequently around here. He was my very first attending, which is just unfair because uh, then you rotate on other services, and, and you sort of have this expectation that it's going to be just like it is when Dr. Suneja is here attending. And uh, he, again, talk about a remarkable clinician, a remarkable physician, and a remarkable teacher. Um, he just won the President and Provost Teaching Award. He's the program director for the Internal Medicine Residency here. And um, when you have role models and mentors like that, that just on a daily basis walk in teaching, mm -hmm. uh, and one of my interests has always been teaching, from, from you know, just sort of as they say, day in and day out, or from the, from the first moment of the day, he's teaching. He's teaching by the way he interviews and examines patients. He's teaching when every time he picks up a marker and diagrams something quickly on the board, he's teaching in the way that he interacts with ancillary services. And it's and not to put Dr. Sunage on a pedestal, but a lot of internal medicine physicians work this way, particularly those who've been doing it for longer. I think the discipline is evolving a little bit. Um, 
to be a little bigger tent, but at, at the core, these were these were sort of hardcore rounders. I mean, this was the this was the I, at one point or another in the Vital Signs newsletter, there was a warning that these are hard, you know long days. You round for hours. Other people didn't like this. I liked it. I enjoyed really digging deep into why is this person's blood pressure not coming down with the normal medicine? What what about them is different? How can we tailor what we're doing to meet their individual needs at a physiologic level? Uh, and juxtaposing that with direct patient care on the inpatient service, um, because I think a lot of that is something that happens in the family practice side too, but particularly I came to a point where I liked having sicker patients rather than patients who were more well. I enjoyed the inpatient side more than the outpatient side, and I think internal medicine was the way to make those things happen as well. But just all day long solving problems with an eye towards helping other people, whether that's patients, their families, and loved ones, other physicians, other care teams, ancillary providers, ancillary services, really understand better what's happening with these patients, sort of the ultimate and early precision medicine, even before we knew what genetics was, how can we deliver the best care for this person at this time? Mm -hmm. uh, and that was best modeled for me in internal medicine, which was exciting. Which makes a lot of sense then that you're drawn to that. I hear you were able to witness people who used or who were educators just in the way that they were being. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious about this idea of mentorship. And it sounds like you saw it in action. Mm -hmm. And some folks are also trying to figure out how do I find mentors? How do I approach possible mentors? Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I think mentors found me. So um, Dr. Suneja is, is first and foremost at this moment my boss. Mm -hmm. He's the head of the Internal Medicine Residency Program. But it, uh, I have actually not rotated again with him. We don't spend a lot of time around each other. But that, that impact that he had on me early for a season was really impactful. And so I think in some sense mentors found me. Pat Brophy is another guy that, although he's in pediatrics, Again, that approach to medicine that uh, he's a, a brilliant researcher. He spent most of his time in training with research. Uh, he was a, did a research time at Michigan before he came to join us. Um, but the way that he took care of patients, again, just second to none and watching that happen. Um, and, and I think what happens when you see somebody working in a way that makes sense to you or, or you see the results uh, in action, you just want to spend time around those people and learn why they what makes them tick and why they do what they do and what do they use particularly in this day and age we use this this hear a lot about what's going to sustain you in medicine i think learning from them what's what has sustained them how do they deal with the day-to-day -day annoyances and 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 still derive satisfaction and 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 um sort of the joy, joy of of uh, practicing medicine Another person who I just encountered by serendipity is, is Dr. Jim Amos, who's in psychiatry. Uh, and and the, the highest compliment I can ever pay anybody is that I, I'll, I'll tell them if they think like an internist. Jim thinks like an internist, despite the fact that he's a spectacular psychiatrist. He approaches problems in the way that I see internal medicine approach problems. He's logical. He's uh, methodical. And he's also a tireless advocate for house staff. And so uh, whether he knows it or not, I think of Jim as one of the most impactful mentors in my life. And, and it's true that he's not taught me probably anything about renal physiology, but he's taught me a whole lot about what it means to be a doctor and a whole lot about what it means to sort of uh, withstand some of the blows of the, the challenges of medicine and particularly academic medicine and really enjoy and drive satisfaction from your job and pay it forward. Uh, the house staff in psychiatry have benefited, I'm sure, from his impact. But everybody who's worked in this hospital that's ever gotten a psychiatry consult 
has benefited from the fact that Dr. Amos uh, takes a really dedicated approach to each patient that he sees with his team, makes a teaching example out of out of those patients for his his house staff and also anybody else that's on the consulting service. And so for me, I didn't ask to work with him. I just encountered him one day and and got was lucky enough to spend a month with him as a medical student, came back and did it again as a, as a resident and just because I set it up. Uh, and so you try to spend time around those people that that make sense to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but at a place like this, you're going to find people like that or they're going to find you. And then it's just a matter, I think for me, it was a matter of being intentional about following that up, uh, whether that's saying, you know, I, I'd like to spend more time learning about how you think about this or could I spend some more time rotating with you or just looking for opportunities to do, you know, what kind of research are they interested in and, and is that something you could participate in? Because I think one of the things we've lost a little bit in medicine is the apprenticeship mm-hmm. uh, approach that used to be present. And so finding a way in small doses to bring that back and spend some time one-on-one with faculty that work for you, uh, work with you well, work their their approaches work for you. And you can decide which of that comes along and it's going to become part of your practice. So this is something that I've not heard before about residency is the idea that you can have that sort of agency to spend time with people that you want to learn from. How does that work in practical reality? I think a lot of times it works um, through research. I think a lot of times what that means is that you, whether that's through writing case reports or, or uh, joining the research from, from that faculty, whether that's clinical, basic science, translational, whatever that is, making it a priority that you want to be involved with spending time next to that person. Because I think away from the wards and things, I mean, it it gets busy on the wards, but away from that, you have time to just listen and talk. And I think that's where some of the, quote, you know, secrets of medicine are shared, uh, where you hear those those stories that begin, let me tell you about a time when I dot, dot, dot. And that's, those are, those are irreplaceable. Um, you know, I think it's true in residency, there is a certain amount of, uh, your, your, your schedule is set for you. Um, but there's elective time too. And so, um, you know, I'll see my friends and colleagues that are going into, for example, pulmonology, it's a big division and some of them are really interested in critical care and they spend a lot more time doing research and picking the brains of those people uh, in that division that, that are leaders in that community, whereas folks that are more interested maybe in the, in the true lung side of things, uh, less in the critical care, spend more time picking the brains of, for example, uh, Dr. Stoltz, or, uh, who's uh, just gave grand rounds, uh, great grand rounds on cystic fibrosis, or, or uh, Dr. Doug Hornick, who uh, you know, is leading the league here in, in, in uh, mycobacteria, and, and just listening to the way that they talk about their field and, and then maybe getting involved with either research or uh, even if it's just a single project, that buys you a little bit of time to develop a relationship there. And I think once then once that happens, it creates, uh, it, just like any relationship, it creates an avenue for communication about, uh, you know, you encountered a situation and you want to bounce the your ideas about that situation off of somebody. This is a, a big enterprise, but it's a small place in the sense that you pass the same people in the halls every day and you sort of you, you say, oh, put your hand, can I just run this by you? And, and, Almost, almost always here, the answer is yes. Um, whether that's something you encountered on the wards or something that you're dealing with in your, your research or in your teaching, hey, I encountered this thing. Uh, could I talk to you about it? And, and I think that stimulates and fortifies those relationships over time. Thinking about what you said with the uh, apprenticeship model and, and thinking about how you have listened to others, 
when we take you back to the start of, of residency, mm-hmm. in what ways did it meet your expectations and maybe what caught you off guard or didn't meet expectations? I think what's nice about uh, clinical rotations in medical schools, they, I mean, this is, a, this is a candid place. I mean, people don't, we don't hide a lot from our medical students. I think we tend to be fairly honest about what life is like. So I don't know that a great deal was surprising in terms of the day-to-day what I would be doing. But over time, further that apprenticeship model, I think, has, and, and I'm, my bias is that it was, it was a good thing, so I'll say eroded. Uh, a long time ago, whatever that means to you, there was no curriculum in medical education. Nobody sat down and said in, in 1975, here are the things which we're going to uh, teach today. You came to work uh, and there were sick people waiting for you and you stayed and took care of them until you uh, fell asleep in the middle of it, I guess. I don't know. Whenever they, you know, <laughs> it was many, many hours and then you went home. And in the midst of that, uh, and, and to listen to folks that went through that, they describe it almost sort of wistfully like, it was hard, but man, we sure learned a lot and it was sort of a bonding experience, but there was no, hold on, let's take a time out and go sit in a conference and watch a PowerPoint. You learned acute coronary syndrome by seeing a whole lot of acute coronary syndrome and having a cardiologist come and teach you in whatever way that was, sometimes generous, sometimes not, about acute coronary syndrome and whether you did or didn't take care of that properly and how you were going to definitely do that better next time. And the same thing was true of acute kidney injury and the same thing would be true of lupus and the same thing would be true of any diagnosis that you that you want to mention. It, at least this is true in medicine. And I think in surgery, this is, is true too. You learned how to take out a gallbladder by standing next to a surgeon that was good at taking out gallbladders who taught you how to take out gallbladders until you could teach somebody how to take out gallbladders. We don't do that so much anymore. And I think that's a little bit sad because it, it's really uh, a galvanizing experience when it does happen. I just had the, uh, the opportunity to rotate on a transplant ID service, which is a very small service. It's the, in service, the service where patients who've undergone either solid organ transplants like kidneys or lungs or hematologic transplants, uh, liquid organ transplants like uh, bone marrow transplants, uh, get weird infections. And so when they get into the hospital with fevers, there's a sort of subspecialized group of people that will help evaluate that. And that, when I rotated on that service, it was just myself and those faculty. And just listening to them talk out loud about their process, it, it goes back to that apprenticeship model. So there's opportunities for that, but it isn't, it is not like that anymore on the general medicine wards where there's uh, a structure and a curriculum and a hierarchy and a lot of the, what I'm sure is brought up a lot, the hidden curriculum of medicine is very, very present there. Mm-hmm. And not just here at, at Iowa, but everywhere. But when you can get to a place where it's just you and a faculty member, and this is where I'm going back to the mentorship, um, that goes away a little bit. And it's just you and that faculty and medicine. And that's extremely refreshing. And it sort of is a uh, uh, medicine in its purest form. And that's what keeps me excited. So you've got to be pretty intentional about those relationships. I think so. Yeah. I think so. They, they, <clears throat> they don't necessarily just happen anymore. They aren't. They don't. And I think that's sort of a Ferris Buellerism, right? I mean, you got life moves pretty fast. Sometimes you got to look up or else it's going to pass you by. And mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things where way, way to work in my childhood. I appreciate that. <laughs> Is that you, well, I mean, my childhood, too, I guess. But by then it was on DVD, which are little <laughs> which are little video discs, Dave. That I saw it in the theater. My we was flickering lights and everything. Yeah. Yeah. How old is Matt Broderick now? No, oh, like 85. I'm sure he still looks great. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, I think that's it is, is these opportunities, they really do come along. But when, uh, 
when they do, you should grab onto them because that, despite how exciting, um, you know, the 46th teaching conference of the day is, or your 93rd opportunity to meet with an interdisciplinary crew about how we're going to take care of this group of patients that are extremely dissimilar, but we're going to take care of them all in the same way and make sure we also get them discharged by 11 AM. That's not the real meat of medicine for me. The real meat of medicine for me is listening to learning from discussing with and, and getting a chance to ask candid questions of the people who do this and do it really, really well on a daily basis. When that, when that opportunity presents itself, I agree. I think being super intentional about taking your, your taking those chances is, is worth its weight in gold. Dave, you know what we've never asked anyone on this podcast? About their knickers? What? <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell us about your experiences on night float? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I actually think that's, it's a, um, this is a good lead into that because I think night float in some sense is is a little bit of a throwback to medicine in the way that it it once was or was a little bit more. Um, and, at this hospital, though it is a huge medical enterprise here, uh, it a lot of things do shut down at night. So, I mean, it's you don't have as many things available to you as... Uh, readily it's much harder to for example get an mri at three in the morning than it is to get one at three in the afternoon um and i think the great thing about night float is that it's uh, a little bit of that mentorship or apprenticeship model where although it might not be a faculty it's maybe a uh, an upper level resident and an intern and a medical student kind of um kind of making their way uh and and really sort of doing battle against disease if you'll take it that way um you know and so I think it, I find night float actually to be a really enjoyable time. I just came off of a night float rotation where I was working with one of our great, great interns, uh, Iro Honkinen, came from the University of Arizona, um, where a lot of great people have come from. Hi, Charles Rappaport. Um, but uh, he did a great job. It's late in the year now, so he knows some things and knows actually a lot of things. But what's really impressive is to watch him take care of patients. And that, that would be true of a lot of our interns to see how they've come from medical students when they first get here. Uh, to doctors and, and not just doctors, but really, really strong doctors, somebody that I'd be proud to have take care of my parents because they ask questions the right way and they treat people with respect and they, they're focused on the right things. But then they leave that room and they come into the team room and we start talking about people and it's evident that they've also been reading and that they've been agonizing about the clinical things that matter and, and some, of, some of these terms that we throw on differential diagnosis to hear the way that they think about organizing somebody who's maybe been undergoing chemotherapy and shows up with a fever and just, you know, it's sort of hard not to smile inside when they come up with exactly the same things that you'd come up with and you're thinking on the same wavelength and you haven't even really talked about the patient and they tell you what they think the plan should be and you get to say, sounds great, let's do it. And there's, uh, that is very different than early in the year where there's a little bit of like, okay, this is a computer. Here's how we turn it on. Because Lord knows in medical school, we're not even allowed to touch the computers. I think that's changing. That is changing. It's changing. Yes. Uh, look out. It's exciting. All right. They finally get you know, a little skin in the game. But right. I mean, this is this is a big deal. And to watch how quickly that happens, um, it's not unique to here, but that's my experience. And so that's really satisfying. And then a chance to, you know, I mean, there you have to do a lot of medicine at night without, you have people available. If certainly I've, I called my attendings a few times on the overnight, not because, um, not because I had to, but because there were things I wanted them to be aware of. Or, uh, there was one time where, uh, I was, one of the things you also do on the medicine night float service is you service the, the point of contact for the medicine consult service. And so there was a patient that was going to go to surgery. They asked for a medicine consult to do a preoperative evaluation. And there was just something odd about 
the overall presentation that I wanted to bounce off of my my attending physician before that surgery happened. And and it was a great conversation and, and we were able to resolve my concern about the patient. And yet uh, we hung up the phone and it was me again, you know, here in the hospital. And, and the, uh, you know, I don't know if the faculty stayed up and wrought their hands and wondered, you know, what, what's he going to do? But um, <laughs> they didn't they didn't come in. So they must have had at least enough trust in, in the work that we had done uh, that it was OK. So that's sort of a neat it's a neat safe place and that you have backup and you have people you can contact. There's always uh, people that are above you and that have a little more expertise. We frequently find ourselves in the ICU bouncing things off of the ICU fellows. You know, do you think you could take a look at this person or help us grab the ultrasound machine and, and put it on their chest to look and see how their heart's beating or how they're, you know, is there anything in the lungs that shouldn't be there? We find ourselves in the cardiovascular ICU. Hey, this EKG looks a little weird to me. Does it give you any, you know, anxiety or, you know, should we just not be too worried about it? What do you think? How might you treat this? And and there's so there's a lot of freedom to just kind of get marshal the experience that's in this institution in a maybe less formal way. We don't order a lot of consults in the middle of the night, but yet we can get a lot of help and we do a lot of learning that way. Right. I mean, you take something like this to one of the cardiology fellows and immediately if they don't know, uh, it's like, well, let's do a quick literature search. Let's pull up the PubMed and see what somebody else has written about this, or I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I know who will let me just text. And, you know, then they're getting on the, on the horn to somebody that knows maybe a little bit more. And, and so it can be a little bit of a meeting of the minds at three 30 in the morning. And again, that's fun. Um, mm -hmm. because it, you know, that it, in the morning you can talk about, uh, well, we did a quick literature search on this and here's what we found. And then maybe the faculty says, great, I'm glad you found that. Let me share this with you. And, and it adds to the sort of robustness of the experience. Tell me about, your decision um, to apply for fellowships mm -hmm. and what that process was like. I think a long time ago, whatever that means to you, I would have been very happy as a general internist. Um, general internal medicine used to be sort of, uh, you know, inpatient, outpatient. They had a panel of patients that they cared for in the office. And if those people got sick they, and went to the hospital, you were still the doctor for those patients. I don't know probably too many more people that would look back and say, boy, those were the good old days. But I think for me, that made sense, uh, wanting to have uh, exposure to both inpatient and outpatient medicine. Um, the other side of the coin is I think you, you develop early on a sense for whether you want to be the, be the sort of quarterback of the team or whether you want to sort of go off into the corner and become maybe a little bit more specialized and focus on one thing. Uh, I couldn't really make that decision, so I picked a specialty where you get to do both. Um, nephrology is a big field. Uh, it, there's there are very few patients in the hospital. This is uh, shameless, but that that probably there there are very few patients that wouldn't benefit from a nephrology involvement in their care just because nephrology does a lot of things. It's much more than just sick kidneys. It's acid-base chemistry and electrolyte management and blood pressure management and sick kidneys. And then when the kidneys are sick, a lot of things are sick. Um, so I think in that regard, there's a lot that I learned from nephrologists that wasn't just about kidneys uh, per se. And so that was really attractive to me was here, here's, a, here's a field where you don't just focus on one organ, but you have expertise in that organ and you can use that to improve outcomes in, in the care of a lot of sick patients. Um, I, I think nobody understands IV fluids, maybe like uh, more, than, more than nephrology and you know, almost everybody in the hospital is getting IV fluids. And certainly uh, the literature most recently is rife with uh, robust discussion. I, I won't know. I don't know if I can call it informed discussion, but robust discussion about 
what are the best kind of IV fluids to give a patient, which seems like a fairly simple question. And yet uh, people have been agonizing about this for a long, long time. So these sort of key questions, the sort of common sense questions that we talk about in, you know, well, at least we did. I don't know what the second year of med school is like now. I guess I should watch more videos about the, uh, <laughs> the new curriculum. Uh, but uh, what we talked about in the second year of medical school was sort of, sort of these common sense things like, how do you take care of somebody who's, you know, needs IV fluids and, and they, or they have high blood pressure or they have kidney injury and, and, you know, how does the body work at a, at a sort of simple level, that early physiology? I think when nephrology comes along, it's a lot of common sense stuff, you know? The patient's sodium level is high, reflecting a water deficit in the body, quote, they're dehydrated, give, give them some water. Uh, uh, it doesn't seem like maybe that's so complicated, but it, it can certainly become so quickly. And, and uh, it's nice to be the common sense uh, to sort of come along and, and say, you know, uh, and it's empowering, I think, to, to uh, consulting teams too, to say, you know this, you've done this a million times and, and you're doing it right. Um, and the patients are getting better and that's good. So for me, that was, uh, and then spending time on the consult service, um, another mentor, Doug Summers, Dr. Doug Summers is uh, just an amazing individual, first of all, in the way that he takes time to teach about every patient. And, and yet it's never, it's never onerous because you're not rotating till you know, 9, 10, 30 at night, but he makes teaching points out of everything. At the end of the day, he stops and asks everybody on the team, what did you learn today? And if they didn't learn something, he's going to find something and you're still going to get home at a reasonable hour. And he treats everybody with respect, whether that's um, people that consulted our service, whether that's the medical student on the service. Uh, he manages to treat everybody with respect and dignity and, and makes them feel like they're important. I probably was drawn to nephrology as much by the content of the field as by the character of the people who went into it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was, I was lured by the opportunity to do the sort of nerdy stuff that nephrologists do. But I really liked hanging out with nephrologists, too. And they, they were my people, and it fit. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that is true of a lot of people, that I think when you go into cardiology, if you're, if you're a cardiologist, yes, you probably love cardiology, but I think you also like hanging out with cardiologists. Um, so I think people will find their way sort of in both veins. And certainly when they both line up, hey, I like doing what these people do, and I kind of like hanging out with them. I think I could make a career out of this. Um, that's a pretty, pretty reassuring feeling. Oh. So what do you have left to wrap up before you? Oh, just two months out? in the ICU. Oh, that's all. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> the bags under my eyes will get baggier. <laughs> Keenan. Yes, sir. Let's think back to your last show. Oh, goodness. On the short code podcast where you, uh, <clears throat> had the infamous Keenan rant. Um, is it really infamous? I don't think it's infamous, <laughs> but we, the, some of us remember, the, especially the people who were on the uh, on the show um, at on that day. And one of the things that you said, well, the the thing that you, if I can, if I remember correctly, the thing that you most were concerned about is the idea that uh, we medical students are not, you know, are not here to do your job for you. We're here to learn. Mm hmm. Is it, does that ring bells at this point? I think so. Has that um, ha has that opinion evolved at all? Are you still like just as vehement about that? I'm I'm vehement about everything. Um, <laughs> I have a I have I, you'll you'll have to edit this I'm sure, but I have a bad Baptist minister syndrome. I'm not always right, but I'm never in doubt. Yeah. Um, and it just works. I mean, you know, it's it's just easier to think that way. No, I I do think so, and I and I probably am quoted as saying to medical students, I work for you. You know, I, I don't work for 
I don't work for this enterprise in the sense that uh, my job is to come here and punch a clock and do the things that a resident does. My job is to do two things, teach medicine to people that are coming along behind me and take good care of patients. And, and everything beyond that is just, is just um, gravy. And as you heard from your cardiologist, gravy is bad for you. <laughs> um, but teaching is good and taking good care of patients is good. And I do think it's important that for me anyway, that I remember on a daily basis, uh, you know, part of my job and a big part of my job beyond the, the actual care of patients is to help other people that are coming along to take care of patients. And whether those people are going to go into internal medicine, like I did, or whether they're going to go into orthopedics, which is, I think the least internal medicine-y subspecialty there is, I can, I have something for them. I can help them in some way. Uh, if they have something they want to ask, they can ask, but if not, I can try to, to frame things. You know, we see a patient with rapid atrial fibrillation and I can set this up to say, you know, you may care nothing about the heart because you, you just say, you know, that's a heart thing and I'll call a heart doctor, but I can say, all right, it's uh, 5:30 in the afternoon, future orthopod, and you've just completed all of your surgeries for the day, and you're feeling pretty buff and good about life, and you want to <laughs> you want to go hit the gym, uh, and then your pager goes off, and and one of your patients that's post-op is in rapid atrial fibrillation. Now you can always call us because you know that's what happens in medicine. We're here, we're available, we like to help, and we don't have much of a personal life, so <laughs> we're available. But by the time I get there and help you, your your plan to go to the gym by six is going to be ruined, and then you won't be able to catch up on the L word or whatever it is you want to watch at home. Uh, so <laughs> can I give you a method to approach rapid atrial fibrillation such that you can get this patient tucked in in 15 minutes? And then they're hooked because... Uh, they want to go home and watch the L word. Mm -hmm. uh, is that how old is that? Have I, just, like, I dated myself? I think I it's know. a little dated, but I don't really know. All right, sure. dub in something recent. I don't know. Um, <laughs> There's going to be a reboot. Oh, already? Look at this. Wow. Current, and I didn't even know. I, boy, I didn't realize. <laughs> I it was... thought you were just pulling from regular headlines. All right. Look at this. That's never happened. So you can. There are these these hooks that you can use to sort of uh, accidentally help people learn, but. Yes, I do think that um, medical students are really important, and um, we can we can pretend that we believe that by creating a lot of uh, conferences to say, "Oh, um, how are you experiencing wellness, and are you feeling okay?" Or we can realize that the reason that burnout, which is a term I don't like, because it's not burnout, suggests that the problem is with the burnt out individual. The problem is with the system. The way that it treats people yeah. and the way that it's it it sets up particularly physicians mm -hmm. and physicians in training to operate at the lowest end of their capacity while it elevates the rest of the system to to put demands upon those people so medical students end up uh sort of begging for opportunities to participate because interns are begging for opportunities to participate because senior residents just got the opportunity to participate um at, to the benefit of, of people elsewhere in the system or we can say to medical students, you're really important. Um, and you've chosen to dedicate your life to healing, which is the most noble cause outside of the clergy there is. I think I've said that before. Yeah. Um, I want to support that and because somebody supported me. And I go back to people like Pat Brophy and Jim Amos and Doug Summers and these people that have been so impactful to me because they, they invested in me. And they and they whether it was through the way that they talked to me or the way that they dealt with me, they said, you've chosen to do something that we think is noble. And we want to help you with that, despite, you know, whatever the challenges of, you know, being in the same room as Keenan Laraway. We're, we, we can set that aside for a minute. And we're going to help you. 
to me, that's you want to pay that forward. And, and so any medical students that rotate with us, I want them to feel important. And I want them to realize we're here for you because at some point you're going to be in our shoes, whether that's a resident or a fellow or, a, you know, an attending physician someday. And I want them to be able to look back and say, when I was on medicine, somebody asked me what I wanted to get out of this rotation and took the time to walk me through something that I can use in some way. And at some point, that'll be nice because they can do a little acid base uh, medicine that they weren't able to do. But ultimately, hopefully they just go home feeling a little bit better that uh, we thought they're important and we think that their education is important. But we also think that their their involvement is important and they're not here to watch PowerPoints. This is it. This is the show. You're here now. Let's go do some medicine together. And I think if we can do that and make it educational rather than make it about check boxes and uh, did they comport themselves in a generally polite and uh which is i think usually parenthesized as simpering manner you know did they did they ask questions in a polite way i don't, that's nonsense that is not what you're here to do in medical school you're not here to figure out how to uh ask questions politely you're here to ask questions boldly to to grow your understanding on a daily basis because you're responsible if not today tomorrow for the care of maybe my mom or dad and I want to know that you're going to ask questions boldly and you're going to advocate boldly for the things that you think are right. And you're going to go to bat for them when they're sick so that they have somebody. Um, because if there's one thing that we know is true, sick people um, need advocates. And they need advocates that understand the system. And, and I, even yet, I don't understand the system, but I understand enough of it to know that if I weren't in this system, I, we, I'd have no chance. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully that's that's what we can contribute. And I yes, I absolutely think that medical students are here to learn and we work for them not the other way around this has been excellent <laughs> very much so um with that we'll wrap up this episode of nightflow keenan laraway thank you so much for coming back on the show i appreciate your uh, sharing your recent efforts in life and, and wisdom the show is made possible by a generous donation by carver college of medicine student government and ongoing support from the writing humanities program and produced in cooperation with the medical student counseling center your thoughts on today's show are of paramount importance, so send them to us at theshortcoats at gmail.com or leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. See you next time. <laughs>